Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. He is the offspring of Greek immigrants. He went to Tufts University and he wrote an essay on Shearson way before it was Shearson Lehman. The essay was so impressive, a guy named Weil hired him. And thus began the banking career of one James Diamond, of course, of J.P. Morgan, their chairman and their chief executive officer. A Baker scholar at Harvard, Jamie Diamond went from bank one out in the Midwest to commanding Fortress Diamond at J.P. Morgan. Here he is on COVID with our Ed Hammond. Getting through COVID is absolutely critical. And we're still in it, though God knows it looks like there's light at the end of the tunnel, you know, by the beginning of the summer or something like that. But and it's not a binary subject. I think, you know, Democrats and Republicans are like ships passing the night. There are legitimate complaints about stuff in this bill that has nothing to do with COVID. There are a lot of people suffering who need help. Both are true. So if you want to go through, you got through all the detail. Unemployed, they definitely need help. Small businesses, they definitely need help. People at the lower end, they definitely need help. Women who had to go home, who basically stopped working because they had to go take care of something like that, they definitely need help. You know, does every, I don't know if you know this, but like half the states, revenues went up. They didn't go down. Do they need help? You know, and we just throwing money at people at one point. So and there will be another side to that mountain. So they should be cautious about overdoing it. Get us through the prom, get the country growing. But, you know, don't try not to overdo it too much. But, but isn't the risk exactly that, that if you have places and states, people that don't need help and are getting the help, you overflood the system. Yeah. You do create this huge risk of inflation. Yeah, and the system already has a little bit of that. So if you look at what's in the system, it looks to us like there's a trillion dollars, a trillion of this unspent. That's before this billion nine, trillion nine. So there will be money. Like, you know, there's a very good chance you're going to have a gangbuster economy for the rest of this year and, you know, easily into 2022. And the question is, does that overheat everything? And we just don't know yet. But I would put that on the things to worry about. You know, I wouldn't worry too much about it. I would worry more about COVID and nuclear war than I'd worry about that. But you know, I, would, I would suspect there's a pretty good chance you're going to see rates going up and, you know, people starting to worry about that at one point. Let's talk about COVID for a second. Uh, I've been very clear. I would not buy 10-year treasuries, just so you know. Um, on, on COVID, we are obviously doing this interview in person, which is fantastic. We're doing it in your offices here in New York, but still largely empty as are my offices, as probably are a lot of people's offices. How important is it to a business like JP Morgan to actually have people physically coming back to work? It's very important. I mean, I, look, I do think there'll be part of the world where a certain amount of people work from home permanently, certain sales, certain ops, so you can track the productivity, et cetera. I think there'll be a large portion who permanently work in the office. Think of our branches, cash management, probably most of the trading floors, et cetera. And there'll be some hybrids where you spend two days, two weeks at home and two weeks in the office or three weeks at home, a week in the office, or three days and two days and two days and three days. But So I think it will reduce the need for commercial real estate. But there are huge weaknesses to the Zoom world. I mean, most of us learned by an apprenticeship system by you know, seeing mistakes, going to trips, how do you handle a client, how do you handle a problem. So it's hard to inculcate culture and character and all those things when you have the Zoom world. Spontaneous combustion, it goes away. Hard to manage, you know, it's hard to be very critical. You got 15 people on the screen. So but before it was like a, 
a deep dive question now looks a little bit rude. And I took a trip to California, met 100 people all outside, all wonderful, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. It's amazing how much you learn about your own business, your own bankers, your own clients, your own products. And, you know, I met with Snowflake and Marketa. What you learn about technology and systems, you're not going to do that in the Zoom world. And, you know, so bankers, you know, relationships. I think it's very hard to build and develop and deepen relationship on the Zoom world. So you still, you know, there'll be more Zooming. People like me will travel just as much as I did in the past. As and when the vaccine does become available for your workforce, will you make it mandatory for people to take it if they do want to return? It's hard to make it mandatory. And there are laws about that. But I think what we'd like to do is kind of have carrots and sticks. We want people to take it. I think it's a far better thing. Uh, you certainly can't make it mandatory before it's fully accessible. So that question can't even be answered until June. Um, but, but I do think you may see some companies do it. I mean, I can see an airline doing it or a hotel company doing it. I can see some people saying if the folks in our branches aren't vaccinated, they're not going in. So there will be pressure. Uh, and I would say carrots and sticks, not mandatory. Jamie Dimon, JP Morgan chairman and CEO, speaking with Bloomberg's at Hammond. Let's get to Ibrahim Rakbari, City Global Head of FX Analysis. Ibrahim, let's start with this question. Who leads the global cycle here? Is it the United States with all its stimulus or the prudent approach from China? So we think there's clearly a bit of a handover going on where China was essential and early in staging the global recovery. But right now, I think the weight is clearly shifting towards the US. And the types of growth numbers that we are expecting alongside many others in the US should give us some hope that even... Uh, some slowing of momentum in China will allow the global recovery to power ahead pretty vigorously uh, on, on the back of and on the shoulders of the U.S. recovery. Ibrahim, you're Edward Morris. The wonderful Edward Morris published this morning on oil, reaffirming a range-bound area, and he's below the $80 hysteria we're seeing right now. I get the same temperament from you, an even keel to what you see in the foreign exchange market. Does your world now correlate with the rest of the markets, or is it separate and distinct? So there are important linkages between broader markets and the economy and foreign exchange markets, but it has, uh, FX has also been playing to its own tune. So we have seen, in particular, dollar trends correlate with the global recovery. The dollar has, generally speaking, been on the back foot. But of late, for instance, we have seen that for when uh, U.S. interest rates rose quite quickly, the dollar was uh, effectively pretty range-bound in G10. And that's in part because interest rates rose elsewhere in the world almost as much as they did uh, in the U.S. And because uh, we have seen... Uh, the behavior of investors uh, focus more on equity markets and commodity markets as a primary expression of, let's call them, reflation trades uh, than uh, in foreign exchange. Ibrahim, if the weight is shifting toward the United States and the strength in the U.S. has led people to go further into the dollar more than perhaps some expected at the end of 2020, can we see the dollar materially weaken from here with the U.S. also leading the global economic recovery? Yes, that's a very good question and one that we've dealt with uh, intensively. And our answer is yes, it can. Uh, but we need two conditions. To, to hold for that to uh, play out. And condition number one, and most importantly, is we do need still a vigorous global recovery. So even if the U.S. outperforms, but the global economy it does okay, then the dollar can sell off just as it did after the previous two global recessions. And the second is we do need U.S. real yields, and particularly U.S. front-end real yields, to stay pretty low. Uh, and for that, it is important that we see a fairly forceful dovish message 
from the Fed uh, on an ongoing basis. Even from Do you expect that from Chairman Powell on Thursday, Ibrahim? We expect a pretty nuanced message. So I think he will tread a fine line where he will reinforce his policy intentions. No consideration for tapering anytime soon. No intention to change hiking plans based on the recent developments. But equally that he will continue to endorse the good news and that the good news are uh, expressed in, in bond deals as well. So it's going to be nuanced. It's not going to be a major pushback in our expectations. Tom brought up the commodity market. So let's finish there, Ibrahim, and get to the commodity currencies in the FX market at the moment. Given what's happening in China, how comfortable are you with the conversation around another commodity super cycle, getting along the commodity currencies for that reason over a long time horizon? So we think that the commodity currencies still have upside. And in G10, that's for us, the Australian dollar, the Norwegian krona, Kiwi dollar and, 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 and CAD as well, we wouldn't talk of a super cycle per se, but we do think there'll be a vigorous demand for all kinds of commodities, for oil on the reopening story, for industrials on uh, restocking and infrastructure, even with some slowing in, in Chinese demand. We won't have a super cycle like in the 2000s, but we think that bodes well for a further uh, pickup in commodity prices after a bit of froth uh, comes out in, uh, in the last couple of weeks, and maybe that has a little bit further to run. I'm amazed at how when the euro comes down, it comes down. Granted, it's within range. We had a little bit of a 119 print here earlier uh, this morning. What is your 12-month call on euro? Is it tradable or is it a mystery? <laughs> so we still have upside in our euro dollar forecast, and we think it'll peak out nearer to 130 sometime this year. Wow. That being said, in the short term, that being said, in the short term, we think that the euro will lag. And that's for two reasons. One is because European rates have lagged and will lag global rates. And two, because the ECB has actually pushed back against the rise in rates more forcefully than in particular the Fed has. And it's a very opportune moment for the ECB because it can actually do something. It can buy more bonds. So it's a good moment for it to show to the market that it's not out of ammunition. So we think the euro goes lower first, but then higher against the dollar. Ibrahim, great to see you, sir. Always good to catch up. Ibrahim Rakbari there, City Global Head of FX Analysis. Let's bring in David Costin now, Goldman Sachs' chief U.S. equity strategist. David, a line from your research, sir. Cyclicals with negative earnings and falling sales in 2020 have returned 25% year to date. Do you stick with it? Uh, the answer, Jonathan, is yes. You have to be, from a tactical point of view, the companies that lost money last year but are actually recovering uh, this year, that is the benefit of a tailwind from be better economic activity. The vaccine that you just mentioned, fiscal stimulus that we anticipate uh, will get passed relatively soon. Uh, all that benefits some of the, uh, the cyclicals. Now, that's not to say the, uh, some of the tech-heavy secular growth companies will not perform well, but just from a relative near-term perspective, probably the cyclicals uh, will we'll, uh, we'll lead the market. It takes us straight to the mechanics of the benchmark, doesn't it? The S&P 500, the overweight weighting of information technology and growth stocks, David. And if that's where you should be, how do you get to 4,300 on a headline index? Well, I think you think of it, uh, what I think about it as a barbell strategy. So 25% of the index, uh, S&P 500, is technology, as you just indicated. And so that has certainly got to be a core part of the portfolio. You're getting very strong revenue growth uh, from the, a lot of these companies. And you think about it relative to pre-pandemic profits, pre-pandemic sales and profits, the, uh, the overall market is actually higher than it was at this time last year. 
Uh, well, that's his important statement. The economy, nominal and real basis, is still a little bit smaller, but sales and earnings are back to where it was before. And in fact, the equity market now uh, about 15, 16% higher than it was uh, 12 months ago. So looking forward, as you just indicated, where's that growth likely to come? Still likely to come in aggregate from technology, but tactically likely to be some of the re, uh, reopening of America. So my colleagues in the equity research, we have an index, uh, the reopening of America index. Uh, Tom, you'll like that title. And basically it's at four, it's been stuck at four. So the upside is as people get vaccinated, as the economy continues to, uh, to, to, re to recovery, which is part of our forecast, well, that means you're getting more of these companies, company level data will be reopening. And that's where the positive earnings revisions is coming from. Last month, last three months, you've had 10 of the 11 sectors have had positive earnings revisions. And that, my view, is what's leading the market higher. Our forecast, $181 of earnings for this year, that's about 7% higher than consensus. We think there's room for upward earnings revisions. That's what's taking us higher. I'm looking for the reopening of America ETF, which I'm sure is coming somewhere to a store near you. David, I am curious, though, underpinning a lot of the optimism in equity performance is this idea that we're going to get gangbusters growth in tandem with relatively low benchmark borrowing costs for the United States. At what point do higher rates pose a problem to your thesis? Lisa, it's a great question. The number one question we get from every client, which is about the relationship between rates and equities. So I think you want to think about it two ways, both level and speed. And level, not concerned about that right now. We've had a 50 basis point backup in nominal rates led by a backup in real yields, as you know. And so that still leaves equities undervalued in the context of very low uh, absolute level of rates. So one and a half percent round numbers, you could go to 2%, 2% on a 10 year treasury yield, same multiple today, Lisa, you'd only be back at the long-term average relative valuation of equities versus bonds. <clears throat> That's if you went to 2%, not our forecast, but that gives you a sense of the, of the, if you will, the flexibility or the capacity of rates to continue to go higher and equity prices still to, uh, to, to be in a good position. On the other hand, the speed of the backup is something we are a little concerned about. And you saw in the last month, bond yields go up by a very significant amount, more than two standard deviation move. Put that you know, in context, very unusual in terms yeah. of the swiftness and the magnitude of the backup. And so that usually is associated with some headwind to the equity performance. And I think that's why duration is the way to think about it. You want to have shorter duration equities. This goes back to Jonathan's question a minute ago, which is how does it cyclicals do better? They have shorter duration in terms of their cash flows than the longer duration technology stocks. So I think that's the way okay. to approach equities through the lens of fixed income. So I'm going to rip up the script here, David Costin, and go, I thank you for the two standard deviation view on fixed income. We certainly lived that, including last Thursday. If short duration is cyclicals, does that mean Apple and Amazon and the rest of them are long duration and to be avoided? Well, they're longer durations, no question about that, uh, in terms of expectations and the faster growth. Uh, they don't, shouldn't be avoided. I would think of it as the barbell strategy. So they're a core part of the portfolio. The tech and the tech sector in particular is a, is a key driver. The semiconductors are expected to have a 28% higher level of profits 
in 2020. Okay, oh, David, look, just because of time, David, I don't mean to interrupt, but just because of time, this is so, so, so important. If they have that cash level and we get a 6%, 7%, whatever GDP bubble, is it just going to be one big share buyback like we saw from Intel over at a decade? We're going to see, we're already seeing this year, we're two months into the year, we've had near record levels of authorization by boards to uh, approve and, and authorize uh, share repurchases for this year. And so that's a reflection of management looking at their business for this year, better cash flows, more flexibility in how to spend money. That's one uh, you know, <clears throat> use of that cash is to, is to buy back shares. That will be a supporting mechanism, in my opinion. But the biggest source of cash is individuals. Tom, you've had about a $500 billion diminution, reduction in money market mutual fund assets uh, you know, in the last several months. A lot of that money at a zero rate is going into equities. And of course, a lot of it's going to the SPAC market. You've had 175 SPACs this year alone, $56 billion. We're on pace to exceed last year's record level by the end of this month. Are you, are you going to do a SPAC with Jan Hatzius? Is that what we're looking forward to? <laughs> I'll have to, uh, I'll have to, uh, have to go ask him about that. I think, I think Mr. Solomon might have other ideas. America. David, good to see you. SPAC. David Costin, Goldman Sachs Chief U.S. Equity Strategist. Let's get some stability on the American economy. Sarah House with us with Wells Fargo and their senior economists. And Sarah, I love, I mean, I have a target just out with comp sales coming in higher than all the geniuses saw, looking for a huge 18% uh, statistic that come in at 21% uh, rounded up. You say we're flush with cash. John just mentioned that with the stimulus. And you're going to migrate from 6.2% higher, higher. How much up are you going to lift? I mean, you know, you're framing six to 7% GDP, or are we going to shift from 6% to China-like GDP? Well, we're looking for 6% GDP this year, and a massive pickup really comes second and, and third quarter, led by the consumer with all this fiscal stimulus flowing through and the excess savings beginning to, to get sent. I think when we look ahead and in terms of where the risks of that forecast lie, potentially they could be to the upside, just given, again, how much excess saving there is, and that has the potential to right. even get spent further into to 2021 and, and really still propel growth quite strongly in 2022. This is more than, than just a summer reopening story. Well, what's so important here is the idea of 6% and beyond. I mean, you are going through those calculations as is every other house right now. Are those calculations out tenths of a percent or are they out big figures? So we're looking at in, in terms of the, the overall sp the spending picture. I mean, I think you can see some some pretty big figures just when you look at what's what's driving this. You know, so we've seen big figures in terms of case count declines recently. We're seeing in some ways, I think the relief package that's working its way through Congress now is even bigger than Democrats maybe expected they would get. And so I think you are still looking at some some pretty substantial numbers when we look at the outlook. For, for not just the, the middle of this year, but on into to the latter end. When you talk about spending, it kind of speaks to John's point. Who leads the next end of the cycle? The idea of, you know, if we don't have China leading the dyna dynamism in global growth, can an infrastructure spending plan in the United States, can more spending to make uh, energy more green throughout the world end up supercharging some kind of uh, cycle in commodities and global growth that perhaps is not driven from China? 
It can certainly help. I don't know if you can get a full another commodity super cycle. I think in many ways that the bounce we've seen is driven so much by this this pickup in demand. But, you know, when we look at just what's happening with just, you know, real disposable income in the household sector, and even when you layer on top of that a, a possible infrastructure deal, you know, these are our our one-time boost. And so you, whether we're, we're going to continue to see that, that pickup in, in spending, I think is, is a harder question. And so that could, uh, could, could impede really the, the durability of that commodities, commodities boost. But I mean, right now it's certainly filtering through into some of the inflation numbers and, and pointing to a, a sharp pickup there. Okay. So a one-time boost, let's say that the infrastructure spending or the fiscal stimulus that we get passed in March on March 15th, as the Democrats expect, is a one-time affair. Does that lead to longer, uh, longer term inflation that's higher than people are currently pricing in? So I think we will see inflation settle at a, a notably faster pace than what we saw over over the last cycle. So we'll get a pop here in the second quarter. But when we look out further, we're looking for core PCE inflation to run a little over 2%, so maybe roughly roughly two and a quarter over, over the next year and, and a half or so. So I think that is a meaningful lift, um, particularly when you just think of how much the Fed has struggled with inflation over, over the past decade. But it remains to be seen if it if it stays persistently high. And I think to look at that, you're going to need to focus heavily on inflation expectations. So does this become self-reinforcing? Have you actually broken that mentality of low inflation that has been so pervasive over the past decade where businesses feel like they can actually price higher, pass higher costs on to consumers? Prices paid, 86. I'm talking about the ISM in the last 24 hours, Sarah, and it was phenomenal. A 60 handle on manufacturing. That's what we want to see. Then you get into prices paid and this has been a trend for a while now people were looking for 80 we got 86 can you just frame that for us how important that is and what explains it well, I think it's it's hugely important, especially when you consider that the last time it was that high was back in 2008, when you did have a big uptick in, in commodities, but at the same time, demand was absolutely tanking. Here, this is a very different scenario. So you actually have demand ramping up markedly. And so it does suggest that, again, we are perhaps shifting into a higher inflation environment. Now, of course, most of that comes on the good side when we look at inflation in, in its entirety. You know, goods only account for roughly a third of, of consumer spending. So we need to keep a close eye on what's happening in services. But basically, we've taken a, away a major source of disinflationary pressure over the past decade. And, and we're, that was really evident in yesterday's ISM prices paid component. So, Sarah, for you, this is a demand story. It's not a supply side story, supply constraints, all those kind of things. It's actually both. So I think immediately we are seeing, uh, we're certainly still seeing some supply constraints. I mean, you, you mentioned the prices paid index, but look at what happened with the, the supplier delivery. So that remains elevated, not quite as high as what we saw in, in the midst of, of the lockdowns, but still substantially elevated as we have issues mm -hmm. with transportation networks, issues with manufacturers getting their, their staff in with COVID and, and keeping those assembly lines running it to the, to the full extent. And so it's a little bit of both. So we expect those supply disruptions to ease, um, at least when it comes to some of the labor challenges over, over the year. But, but I think you're still going to have some bottlenecks just given how strong the, the goods and orders picture have been um, over in, in recent months. It's going to take some time for those yeah. backlogs to get filled. Sarah, not to put numbers in your mouth, but if we move from 6.2% to 7%, 
or dare I say 90 days of 8% GDP, how does that change the I part of the equation? Do you guys have any understanding coast to coast of how corporations will invest in this boom? Or do they just do what they've always done, which is buy back shares? Well, I think it's certainly supportive for the investment environment when, again, you talk about some of these supply constraints, um, not just from the staffing issue. But do you see evidence of it? Is there evidence that they will invest? Well, we've already seen very strong in investment and it's maintained stronger. So instead of hitting, you know, perhaps an air pocket as we had uh, investment pulled forward for things like information processing equipment, it's remained incredibly strong. We saw it with a durable goods report last week, the core shipments of three and a half percent. And so it seems like you are getting uh, continued momentum where uh, where businesses are, are rising to meet that challenge and meet that demand and that support of investment. This isn't just necessarily going to be the, the consumer propelling growth forward in the year ahead. Data has been fantastic in the last 24 hours particularly. Thank you very much, Sarah House, Wells Fargo Security Senior <laughs> Economist. He needs a cup of coffee because what we do is we talk to pros in this horrific pandemic who are doing not talking. Amesh Adalja has spent the evening in ICU at his hospital, and he joins us now after a long shift. How is ICU different, Dr. Adalja, now versus 10 months ago? It's Right now, it's about the lowest that I've seen with COVID in several months. I think 10 months ago, we were looking at, um, it was actually the middle of kind of, of, the, of the summer, the summer surge around that time. We're starting to see the spring surge kind of a lot more patients, a lot more nursing home patients getting infected, a lot of them showing up in, in, in the ICUs. Right now, I would say there was only one coronavirus patient in an ICU, which is a, is a good change. Mm-hmm. I think the height of it here, you know, I, I clinically work in Pittsburgh, although I have a Hopkins affiliation, was around the winter time when it was really inundated uh, that, during that winter surge. And that seems to have dissipated. And I think that's evidence that our vaccine is getting to those vulnerable populations and they're getting protected. And we've seen it in the national data when you look at nursing home deaths, nursing home cases. And I think that's going to give our hospitals a lot of respite in terms of capacity concern, which gives right. governors flexibility. The nursing home success is the 80-year-old cohort, maybe the 70-year-old cohort. How? What is your timeline to get down to the 60-year-olds and to begin to benefit those 49 and older? It's likely going to be different depending upon the state. So there are some states that are already moving into high-risk individuals that are less than the age of 65. In my state of Pennsylvania, they haven't done that yet. They're still really sticking to the 65 and up cohort. So it's going to take some time. It all depends on vaccine supply. The Johnson & Johnson approval is going to help. But in the short term, we're only getting about 4 million doses. So it's going to take some time to trickle out. But we are getting better. We are moving faster. So I do think that, that as we get into spring, mid-spring, we will have most of our people that are at high risk that live in the community vaccinated or have access to the vaccine. And I think even before we cross that herd immunity threshold, we'll be in a very different place because we won't be worrying about hospital capacity or personal protective equipment or ventilators or any of that anymore. And I think that's really what drove a lot of the public health intervention because we were always worried about the about you know, keeping the curve below hospital capacity. Dr. Adelja, how concerned are you about the New York variant? I am. It's hard to know exactly how to be concerned about all of these variants. There are many of them that are kind of floating around, and there's many that we don't even have characterized because we don't do much sequencing. I think the New York variant is something kind of in the intermediate range, that we worry about it being more contagious. 
our vaccines are likely to still prevent what matters when it comes to these these variants or any of the original version of the virus, serious disease, hospitalization and death. So I think the existence of these variants just underscores the need to accelerate vaccination to the fastest pace possible. Are we winning the race? I think we're, we're kind of keeping pace with it, but we'll see what happens to the overall number of cases right now. They, they ha in the last 10 days or so, there's been an increase of a couple percent. We don't know if that's actually a trend or if that's an aberration in the data. But as long as our, ca our cases are flat or going down, I think we're at least, at least treading water and nothing, and nothing serious is, is going to, uh, it's not going to undercut that. But if we go up again, if we see, for example, the UK variant continue to increase, then I think we really need to, to you know, step on the gas when it comes to vaccination. And I think we're getting better. Over 2 million is getting better. I think there should be no speed limit, however, when we're talking about vaccines. Is the trend in better data on hospitalizations and deaths linked somehow to quarantine? Or do you just simply have to wait way down the road to begin to ebb quarantines country to country? I think you're going to have to do a lot to disentangle what goes on. And we, we know that social interaction spreads the virus. So the less social interaction you have, the less likely you are to, to have cases. But what does each added step do? That takes a while to, to, to control for because people will voluntarily start to quarantine. People start wearing face coverings at the same time. People start to um, wash their hands a lot. The mass gatherings get, get canceled. All of that ha has a role. So you have to kind of piece apart things and try and control for all the different variables that were happening, happening at the same time to know exactly what each public health intervention has. And it's a hard job to know exactly what worked. Dr. Adalja, how much of a stumbling block is it that children cannot get vaccinated and probably won't be able to get vaccinated until potentially early next year? I don't think it's really a stumbling block if you look at the epidemiology. We know that children are usually and, and greatly spared from the severe consequences of disease. There, there are some exceptions, but in general, they're not some. They're not at high risk, and they're not accelerators of the of the virus in the community. So, with influenza, they really drive a community's transmission of influenza. They don't do this with coronavirus. So what we were trying to do with the vaccine is reduce the harm that the virus was causing, and that meant going after the vulnerable populations first. So I don't think it's an obstacle. And remember, there's a different risk-benefit calculation when you're talking about vaccinating a nine-year-old versus a 90-year-old. And you have to really think, you know, is the vaccine, the, this vaccine or these current vaccines, the best vaccine for this child? Or will it be some second-generation vaccine down the road that might have a less, less of a side effect profile? So I think we need to do the studies. I think children will get vaccinated, but I don't think it's an obstacle to anything right now. Doctor, I know you're at the end of your overnight shift, so we'll let you run. Thank you for your hard work, sir. We appreciate it. Thank you. Amish Adalja there of Johns Hopkins. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.